Uh, my name is Mark Duncan. I'm one of your pastors here at Harvest, and can I say how excited I am to be with you this morning as we uh, launch into a brand new uh, teaching series. These next few months, we're calling Full Length Mirror, uh, moving from good intentions to gospel transformation, or moving from good intentions to gospel transformation. So that's going to be found in the book of James this morning. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and start turning to James chapter 1. And while you do that, I'm going to check and make sure that I am good to go right here in this mirror. Thank you. A little bit of like affirmation there. In the fir first service, they were like, yes! So exciting. No. Yeah, I think I'm good, right? It doesn't get any better anyways. Um, this morning, thank you. Yes, Hayden got that. All right, this morning, um, obviously the, uh, the elephant in the room, we got this big mirror here on the stage. I wonder if you, if you ever thought about how uh, often we take uh, mirrors uh, for granted uh, just in our culture, uh, just how uh, prevalent they are. I mean, even in your own, in your home, right, there are uh, probably a lot of mirrors. Certain rooms, we have expectations uh, that as we go out in public even, that there will be mirrors in them, like bathrooms, you know, for instance. Like, have you ever, it ever occurred to you to go into a bathroom and there not be a mirror there? Like, that's just sort of like an expectation that there's going to be a mirror in a bathroom, you know, in, in, a, in a bedroom. There might be a, a mirror there. It might be a, a mirror that you look at like this. It's a full-length mirror that can, you can see all of yourself. Yes. In, uh, in one view right there in that mirror. You know, why do we have mirrors in our life? So we can see what's going on with this, right? Because I don't know if, unless you've figured out how to do this. I haven't figured th this out. Uh, there are some parts of me I can see without a mirror, but there are other ones, namely this face that I have, that I can't see what's going on with that unless I look into a mirror, right? That's why we have those. That's what the utility was. You remember, think back like what life must have been like before mirrors, you know, back at, back at the beginning after God created Adam and Eve, you know, and like they just, you know, Adam's like, I feel like there's like some spinach in my teeth, but I can't really tell, you know, what's going on with that. So what he had to do, he had to run to like the nearest like pond, hope it was cool, and look down there and like, did I get it? You know, and it's still a little cloudy there. You know, it's not that great. Well, then they figured out, right, hey, we can take this bronze stuff uh, and we can shine that up, hang that on the wall. And it's like, oh, I can sort of see like a version of myself in that, you know. And then, of course, they, you know, they eventually figured out how to use mirrors. And we just sort of take them for granted, even in our cars, right? We have mirrors in, in our cars that help us see behind us. And we even got those little vanity mirrors that we pull down, you know, for those ladies that like to do their makeup while they drive to work, you know, and sometimes. Um, uh, they're, they're, that's what they're there for, right? They're vanity mirrors. We can see what's going on with this. You know, mirrors are good for really one thing, right? They're, they're good for showing us when we look into them exactly how we look as is. You know, but how cool would it be, how cool would it be if I had a mirror, I don't know if this would be a magic mirror, I guess, if I had a mirror that I could, I could look at and not only see what I look like as is, but like maybe I would like say some magic words or something and it would show me what I could be. It could show me like what I would look like maybe in a few years. It would show me like what life was like when I didn't have this bald spot, you know, like I wish I could just look at that and be like... No, nope, it's still there, you know, it didn't work. There's no mirrors like that to my knowledge, right? There's no mirrors that if I look at it, it'll show me at the ideal age or the ideal weight that I want to be. Unfortunately, don't work that way, right? If you figure that out, you've got an amazing million-dollar idea, I guarantee. But what if there were 
a mirror, a full-length mirror that would show me exactly what I look like spiritually, but then wouldn't stop there, would show me what my potential would be to look like, right? Like, it would show me what my potential spiritually would look like, you know, that there is a mirror. That's what we're getting at today. There is a mirror like that. Uh, This series, as we go through it, we're going to be looking at this mirror, this Word of God as a mirror that shows me exactly who I am, faults and all, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't leave me without hope. It shows me how I can change. It shows me uh, how God can seize me, the potential in me. Regular mirrors just show the reality of the man. They don't show his potential. Uh, we, have, we have a saying here, Johnny says it a lot, you know, if this book is open, God's mouth is moving. I just want you to think about this morning as we dive into his word and as we go through this series, that these are not uh, just words assembled on a page, uh, that this is not just a, a history book, uh, but these are the very words of God for you, for me. Words that show me exactly who I am. But don't leave me there, but show me what he wants me to be and how what he is making me into. This mirror is the word of God. James 1.25, we're not going to look at that in depth this week because that's next week, but it, says, it calls the Bible the perfect law of liberty. As I look into that, it shows me how I can be free in Jesus and what he has done. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. When I come to this mirror, it shows me what God has for me. It shows me what I'm missing out on when I choose to take it upon myself to make things happen in my life. The mirror of God's word most importantly shows me his love for me. That love that caused him to send his only son who lived a sinless life to die on a cross for my sin so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be restored to him, so that someday I might be with him for all of eternity in his presence, but also that I might have life, I might have new life now in this life. That is why he came. That is what this mirror tells me. We call that message the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, the gospel doesn't just stop at being forgiven. Right, it, it leads to being transformed. And that's what we're talking about in this series, moving from good intentions to transformation, to gospel transformation. How does the gospel, how does the good news about Jesus change me and the way that I respond to the world that is around me? So we're going to look into the mirror of God's word this morning, and I want, specifically we're going to look and see how a mature faith, mature faith is absolutely necessary to seeing this transformational life change. And I've titled this message this week, Fostering a Faith That Doesn't Freak Out. All right? Fostering a Faith That Doesn't Freak Out. Now, what do I mean by faith? You know, that's a a good word we use a lot, uh, but I think a lot of times we don't understand the fullness of what it means. Is faith just spiritual understanding, spiritual knowledge? Uh, I think a lot of people would say that they're very knowledgeable about spiritual things, but they have not put faith into them, right? Like, it's not purely knowledge. It's not identity. You know, we, we use that term a lot. People refer to Christians as people of faith. You know, what does that mean? Is it just a label that I carry around, or does it mean something more than that? Is it a feeling that I have, that I kind of generate within me? Like, today, I am going to act on faith. Do I have that ability to do that? What is faith, then? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 
tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, the assurance of things hoped for. What's assurance? It's a, it's a confidence, isn't it? It's a confidence in things that are hoped for, those things that are promised to me in Jesus, things that I haven't seen yet, and a conviction to act on those things, right? So I'm going to have a working definition for us today. If you take notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. Working definition of faith today. Faith is a confident assurance in a credible authority that leads to a calculated action, right? Confident assurance in a credible authority that leads to calculated action. See, I, I, I'll give you an example of this. I feel, I've been driving, I guess, vehicles since I was you know, 15 or maybe a little bit before, and I have learned over those years not only how to drive a particular vehicle, but a wide assortment of different types of vehicles. And because I have that experience, because I have uh, the understanding of how it works, I get into my car every day, and I turn the key, and I drive, right? So what am I doing there? I'm putting faith into my own driving skills. I, whether you agree with this or not, I consider myself to be a credible authority in how to drive a vehicle, okay? Like, I think I've demonstrated that. And so to demonstrate that I am confident in that ability, I act on it. I act on it. I don't just talk about being able to drive a car, I go get into the car, and I unlock the door, and I turn the key, and I drive it. See what the difference is? Faith is not just something I talk about. Faith is something that will result in action. It results in real action, real steps of action. Spiritually, that means, because I know God, he's that credible authority, right, that's in that statement, because I know God, I believe his promises, and I act on them. It's not just knowing. There's a doing that goes along with that that demonstrates the faith. That's the faith component. Our faith moves. Unfortunately, many of us have departmental confidence when it comes to our faith in God. We're willing to trust Jesus to be our Savior, to be the forgiveness for our sins, but we don't trust him with the financial crisis that we're going through. We trust him to be our eternal Lord and Savior. We don't trust him to give us wisdom in how to handle a wayward child that has left home. We've departmentalized our faith. It has limitations, right? Because we doubt the credentials of that authority. We don't have the confident assurance, right? It never is going to lead to transformation. All it takes, and maybe you have known someone like this, All it takes is some major life event, a season of great loss, a season of pain, a personal failure, and bam, everything that was said that I stood for is gone, and my faith in God is diminished, and that that person just walks away from the faith. Have you ever seen that? It's a disheartening thing. It's a disturbing thing to see someone that that you've known for many years who you felt they understood, they had the same understanding, had a growing faith in what Jesus had done on the cross, but then when something hard came into their life, All of that was washed away. What happened in that? Actually putting faith into action. It was was a departmentalized faith. It was good for talking about a church, but it it didn't lead to any real life change. And when, when that trial came in, it just tore all of that false structure away. So hard to see that. So we may have good intentions. You want to please God, right? You know, but we don't have that mature faith that may lead to transformation. That's what we're going after today. So as we look into that full-length mirror of God's Word this morning in James 1, 
I want you to ask the question yourself, how can my faith be transformed into a mature, living, solid faith that is ready for whatever comes? A faith that doesn't freak out when it counts, all right? So I'm going to give you this morning four truths of the gospel that transform my faith. Four truths of the gospel that transform my faith right here from James chapter 1. So would you read with me in verse number 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to underline a couple words in your Bible in that verse. First, I want you to underline the word count. I want you to underline the word all. I want you to underline the word joy. I want you to underline the word meet. And then in verse 4, I want you to underline the word full. All right? I'll come back and explain why in just a second. The first kind of truth, though, that we want to look at this morning is that I can lead with joy when I feel like I'm losing my life. I can lead with joy when I feel like I'm losing my life. Another way to, to say that would be an untested faith is an incomplete faith. An untested faith is an incomplete faith. Look back at verse number two, that word count that I had you underline. Uh, This is one of those classic scenarios where the English language doesn't fully capture the the intended meaning uh, that James is writing down to his listeners in this. We consider the word count just to be sort of like consider, right? Consider it to be joyful when I meet trials of various kinds. Uh, And it does sort of carry a a taste of that. But in the original language in Greek, the word is hegoamai. And hegoamai means something much deeper than that. It means not only to consider, but to govern my life or to lead myself in such a way that joy is always the default response when it comes to trial. It's not like a consideration like, well, I could respond in this situation with joy. uh, Or I could be really ticked off about it and start freaking out. Like That's not how it works. It's like, don't consider it. Like, lead with joy. Go ahead and decide and govern in your heart. Like, the truth of the gospel means that these trials are not going to be the end of you. God is doing something. God is working in this. Lead with joy. And then I had you underline the word meet, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice it doesn't say count it all joy when you make it through the trial. All right? At the end, when you're like, oh, Now I see what you were doing, God. That is so awesome. Good job for you. Hopefully that is a joyful time for you as well. But he says, count it all joy when you meet them. On the front end, when you're like, now what do I do? I know what to do. I'm going to leave with joy in this. I'm going to start in joy. Because God is not finished working on me yet. God has a plan in this Why does God let these things come into our life? Look in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, stability, consistency, patience. How is that produced? By testing. There's no other formula for that. You don't learn stability. You don't learn steadfastness without there being a measure of testing. I'll give a a real-life example of of how we do this every day. Those of you that have had the experience of teaching a child to learn to ride a bicycle, uh, you've learned some of this. Okay, so you get to that critical phase uh, where your uh, your child has 
Uh, it's ready to take off the training wheels. Okay, it's the big step. Time to move on to the, uh, the big girl, big boy bike. Take off the training wheels and give it a go. But here's the thing. So they had those training wheels on. They didn't have to worry about one very important feature of riding a bike, very important step. You know what that is? Balance, right? <laughs> they didn't have to worry about that. Why? Because the wheels were there. They sort of kept them up. You know, you, you're really just sort of learning the pedaling motion and the turning motion when you're younger like that. But there's that critical moment where you take off the training wheels as a, as a parent or as a friend. You stand behind them and you give them a push, right? And they're like, whoa, you know, like this right here, flying all over the place and screaming. It's like, why don't you let me go? Daddy, don't let go. And you go and you grab the back of the seat again, right? You drive with them a little bit further, right? And then what do you do? Let them go again. You know why? And they're like, no, you know, why did they, why did we do that? Because a good parent, a good friend knows there's no way they're going to learn to ride the bike until I let go of the bike and let them feel the tension of that moment. You don't learn balance unless you're on your own like that. You know, and it's hard, you know, especially as a parent, to let go, because you know they're going to fall a few times, right? Going to get a scraped knee here and there. Might hurt a little bit. It's not going to be bad. You know, I'm, not, I'm a good dad. I'm not going to let, let my daughters be hurt badly. But, like, I need to let them experience the tension of that so that they learn, right? God is a good father. He's a good father, to bring the trials into our life as a punishment, to bring trials into our life uh, because we don't trust him en- enough. He's doing it. He's like, I, he's like you, you trust me, but there is so much more, so much more faith, a stronger faith that you could have. But the only way that you're going to experience that is by having to look to me in the midst of this trial. I'm going to let go. I'm not going to let you get hurt, but I'm going to let go and let you see that. And then he says, let steadfastness, in verse 4, have its full effect. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can be like, okay, God, this is something you want to teach me, obviously. And like, you know, two days in, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for that to be done now. <laughs> okay? I think, message received, lesson learned. I think my faith is stronger, and God's like, we're just getting started. Like, I'm making you. I'm transforming you into something new. He says, let it have its full effect. Respect the process if you will. God is at work in me through these trials. They're not by accident. These are handcrafted by design to strengthen my faith. But for many of us, we, we use our faith in, in kind of a different way. I'm going to give you an illustration here of, uh, of, of boating. So if you're a boating person and I'm way off, you can tell me privately, okay? So I'm not a boating person, full disclosure. But I think many of us use our faith in two different ways. One, the first way is kind of like a bailing bucket. You know what that is? Like in a boat, you have a a bucket usually on board. If if excess water gets into the boat, you can scoop it out and toss it, right? You just kind of scoop out the water, toss it over the side, scoop out the water, toss it over the side. And the problem is like that that might work well for like a, a spring shower in the afternoon. You get a little extra water in the boat and you need to toss it over. You can deal with that. But when there's a heavy storm and there's 30 foot tall waves, and the wind is whipping back and forth. And by the way, you know, hashtag physics here, like the boat in the waves like gets turned sideways so that the side of the boat is facing the waves. That's just what happens. That's what the waves naturally do. It draws the boat to the side, and guess what happens? More water is pouring in over the side of the boat. And you've got your little bailing bucket 
the crutch of your faith that you've been standing on. You're just kind of tossing it on here, trying to save yourself, running from spot to spot, trying to throw out the water in the boat. All the reason there's more stuff pouring in from side to side. See, standing on my own confidence, standing in faith in myself, there's a limitation. And I know some of you here today are like, I can handle a lot. It may be true. Um, I think you can handle a lot less than you act like you can handle. Uh, some of you are, that I'm a tough exterior at heart, I can handle it all. Uh, the problem is just like that, like in a storm, there's not just one thing happening. There's multiple things going on, right? Wind, waves, water. When he says, count it, Joel, when you meet various trials of every kind, at some point, that, that weak little faith, and for some of us, that bucket is very small. That little weak faith is not going to be enough. And the boat's going to get capsized. See, many of us act like that. We treat our faith like a bailing bucket. It's good to have around. It's shiny. Right? It can get me out of a pinch. They're not really depending on that for anything too serious. And that's why that faith is swept away oftentimes. I would challenge that God has promised to us in the gospel something much different. There's a, a piece of equipment on a boat called a, uh, a sea anchor. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's not like the old anchors where you got like the, the anchor and the chain you toss over the side and let it sink to the bottom. You know, when you're out in the open ocean, that doesn't really work very well. You know, oftentimes you don't have a long enough rope or a chain for it to go to the bottom. And that can sort of work out badly for you by pulling the boat over. You know, in a storm, that can be really dangerous to be anchored to the, the floor of the sea. So they made these things called sea anchors. You may never have seen one before. I should have made a picture of this maybe. It's like a parachute that goes out in front of the boat in the water. And it goes under the water, and the waves, as they are sort of curling around and crashing, they pull that parachute forward. And because that anchor is attached to the bow of the boat, the front, guess what it does? It pulls the bow of the boat where it's facing the waves head on. And if you know anything about boating, that's the safest place to be when the waves are crashing, is facing them head on. That's the way the boat is designed to work. It can go over the swell of the waves. And then once the captain's got the sea anchor deployed, and it's at the right distance from the boat, uh, he doesn't have to sit there and panic anymore. He just lets the sea anchor do the work that it was mine to do. He's keeping his eyes fixed ahead on that thing, and he's able to ride out the storm. Deploying the sea anchor doesn't make the storm go away. But it gives him stability and security in the midst of the storm. He's not running around trying to save himself with a little bucket. He's letting the sea anchor do its job. My faith in God's promises don't remove the storms from around me, but it redirects my eyes to where my help comes from. I can have joy can experience true joy because I know I cannot lose the one who is keeping me. I cannot lose the one that is holding me fast in the storm. I can have joy because I know that this is only strengthening the bond between us because I'm having to put all my chips, all my, all, my, all my trust in him to take care of it. I can have joy because I know once he brings me through this, oh, how much more readily I will follow him the next time. That's how I can give me joy. That's how I can lead with joy time and time again. And every time I go through something, that only makes me stronger, only makes me quicker to trust him. I can have joy because these trials are not destroying my life. They're used, being used by God to give me a transformed life, a life of confidence, security, and stability in him. You know, our, our good intentions say, just dig deep, you've got this. Just dig in. Just ride it out. Our good intentions say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, Right? Very catchy song. 
It's all well and good until you experience true loss. And there's always something harder than you think that you're capable of handling. It just, it's just true when multiple things come at you. Good intentions say that, and good intentions say avoid pain at all costs, or at best search for a way to end them quickly. But gospel transformation says, I'm tied to the one who led with joy. You know, Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Another, another version calls it the author and the finisher of our faith. I love that. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You know, Jesus, though he was in the moment in Gethsemane struggling with what was going to happen, he's a person, still felt emotion, the tension of what was going to happen, the thought of being separated from a holy God even for an instant was terrifying to him. But because of the joy that was set before him, restoring us to God, he endured the cross. He led with joy. We are entitled and promised that we can do the same thing. I can meet my trials with joy because I know they're not accidents this morning. They're for my good. I can meet them with joy because I'm tied to that anchor, the one who remains steady when everything around me is not steady. I can meet trials with joy because I know I will not lose who I am in Jesus Christ, that he has made me his, and and that no one can change that. No one can take that away. Can you relate to that joy this morning in the midst of trials? You're struggling to believe that right now. I'm being honest. It's a hard one. I don't know what you're going through. I imagine like many of us in this room are going through something. I imagine there's several of us in this room that are going through a lot of things at the same time, various trials. See, the response is the same. It's not, it's not meet, you know, lead with joy when it's a little thing. It's a leave with joy when I don't see how there's any way out of this. My eyes are fixed on him, Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. But the second truth this morning we need to reflect on is I can ask for godly wisdom instead of struggling to come up with answers. I can ask for godly wisdom instead of struggling to come up with answers. Would you read in verse number five with me? If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will fade away." For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But listen to this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let me take a quick survey Pretty sure how this is going to work out. I already took a survey at 9 a.m. And, and it worked out the way I thought. How many of you here, by a show of hands, would say that you lack wisdom in some area of your life? Raise your hand. All right, 100% participation. I was pretty confident in that, all right? If you didn't raise your hand, I didn't see it, and shame on you for lying. But uh, <laughs> if any of you lack wisdom, all right, so we can all agree by a show of hands this morning that that is all of us, okay? If any of us lack wisdom, what is the solution given in the word of God, for if I lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Wow, it's really that simple. If I lack wisdom, let me ask of God. 
Why? Why? Verse 5, because he gives generously. He gives generously without reproach. You know, I think this, I was sharing this example earlier. You know, when I would go to my dad as, as, a, as a teenager and tell him we wanted to go out, you know, for the night and ask him for a little money, you know? He'd be like, uh, <laughs> uh, you don't have your own money? You know what? Didn't, didn't you work? Don't you have any? Well, can I just have 20 bucks? And he would give you, you know, give me, we can't get anything with 20 now, but give me 20 bucks. And then he'd say, and bring me back the change, right? Did any of you have parents like that? I bet you did, right? They'd give me back the change. You better not spend more than this amount. All right, I'm not throwing my dad under the bus. He's a very generous man, but I'm so glad that God's just kind of like, hmm, oh, really? Like, you need some wisdom? <laughs> Is that so? Uh, well, here, how about I give you a little bit, all right? Okay, let me get you something to get, get past, all right? But don't come asking tomorrow. No, it says he gives generously and without reproach. He's like, I'm... I've got everything here that you need. You know, you're struggling for wisdom. Stop looking everywhere else for answers. And he gives an, an example of, of what this is called. He refers to this as being double-minded. Right? A double-minded man, verse 8, is unstable in all his ways. Another way to think about that word double-minded is caught between two kingdoms. Caught between two kingdoms. The kingdom of, of bowing the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior and trusting him as that anchor out ahead of me, guiding me, or the kingdom of myself, where I've got to make a name for myself, where I've got to surround myself with these false senses of security. Right, they're caught between two kingdoms, being double-minded. I thought of an example in God's Word of this when, in Mark 4, when Jesus and the disciples are in the boat in the storm. Are you familiar with the story? Where was Jesus at during the storm? He's taking a nap, right? He's sleeping, uh, he was a human, all right? He was a human being, got tired. He was taking a nap in the boat, all right? The disciples were out there, and the storm comes up out of nowhere, as they often did in the Sea of Galilee, and the, and the wind's howling, and the waves are, are crashing against the boat, and the disciples are running around, like, screaming. You know, I imagine they had little bailing buckets. They're trying to toss water over the side, panicking. What's going to happen? And one of them's like, where's Jesus at? Like, where's Jesus? It's like, oh, I think he's taking a nap. He's over there. Taking a nap? Like, who sleeps in a storm, okay? Like, someone wakes him up, Jesus, do you not know what's happening out here? There's a storm. And I love it in a very accusatory way. He says, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? A very ironic thing to say to Jesus, seeing as how the whole reason that he came to this earth was because we were perishing. But in the moment, they weren't thinking about that. In the moment, they weren't thinking about who was in the boat with them. They were thinking about their kingdom, the kingdom of saving myself. Get up and do something. You know, I think halfway in their mind, they're thinking, could you at least grab another bucket and help us? Like another set of hands would be great, Jesus. Instead of Jesus looking at them and being like, how dare you talk to me? How dare you talk to me like that? Fine, I'll just take off, walk across the water. You know I can do that, and I'll leave you guys here to figure it out. Could have said that, right? No. He stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and said, Peace be still. And then he came back to them lovingly and said, How how could you still have such a small faith? Man, I think their uh, their faith grew a little bit that day, don't you? Why were they freaking out with Jesus in the boat that day? They, you know, they were projecting their limitations upon him. 
They're projecting their kingdom upon his kingdom. They're being double-minded. They're unstable. That's why they're freaking out. If there's no way out of this, we're going to go down. And Jesus just with one word said, peace, be still. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. You have not because you ask not, right? Ask and you shall receive. How many times do we need to hear that from God's word before that becomes a reality in, the, in our practice? God, I don't understand what to do. I really don't understand. Would you give me wisdom to understand? Would you help me? Would you bring a, a brother or sister in Christ to come and, and, and speak into this? God, would you provide for this need when I don't see how it's possible for it to provide? Would you help me to shed the, the, my kingdom, the thoughts that limit me in that, to see what you can do in your potential and to keep my eyes fixed ahead on that anchor? If you lack wisdom, ask. He says, ask in faith, no doubting. Remember that definition of faith? It's a confident assurance. I know it's been promised to me in Jesus. I know that these trials are meant for my good and for his glory. And because I know that, I'm going to act on it. That's putting faith in motion. That's not being double-minded. All right, that, you know what that is? That's seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added unto me. That's what Matthew 6.33 says, right? And then he talks about, James talks about that in verse 12. He says, the blessed is the man who remains steadfast, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's not necessarily a figurative crown or a literal crown, but the crowning you know, life that Christ gives us, new life in him, a transformative life. As he says, I am making all things new, I know that that applies to me as well. So where do you need wisdom this morning? Don't make the mistake of the double-minded man. The double-minded man, the rich man that puts his, his faith in his pursuits, as it says in verse 11. And by the way, you know, the poor man could put his faith in his pursuits too. Where are you looking for those answers? Why are you looking for those answers when you can ask for wisdom and know that God wants to give it to you generously this morning? Are you stuck this morning living between two kingdoms, expressing a verbal faith in God but forming a backup plan in case that doesn't work out? True faith, mature faith, doesn't make backup plans. Not when I'm tethered to that anchor that's in front of me. Seek first His kingdom. This is the third truth this morning. I can discipline my desires instead of being drawn into their deception. I can discipline my desires instead of being drawn into their deception. Look at verse number 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Another way to say that truth this morning is that an undisciplined faith is a vulnerable faith. God will never tempt you to sin. It does not mean that God will not allow your, of your own sinful desire you to be tempted to give you an opportunity to demonstrate faith 
as you say no to it. See the difference? God will never whisper in your ear to tempt you to sin. But because he is a good father, he gives good gifts, he redeems the thing that was meant for evil in me and you, and he says, now I'm going to see you see the joy, the transformation that happens in your faith as you say no to this, this desire that feels so natural to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 10, 12 to 14 says, uh, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking us, not common to man. In other words, you're not tempted any differently than any other person that's ever been alive. Uh, we face the same temptations. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also will provide a way of escape that you'll be able to endure it. You hear that promise? God will never, never allow me to be tempted beyond my ability to say no to my desires of my flesh so that I can say yes to him. That's a promise. He's never going to be out for my bad to, get, to trick me up, to make me fall. That's not his plan. His plan is to see my faith grow as I choose what he wants, his kingdom over my kingdom, step away from my sinful desires. And then that, that passage in 1 Corinthians, he said there is always a way of escape. You know what that means? It means I can always say no. I want you to repeat that after me right now. I can always say no. Do you believe that is true? Do you believe that is true? And oftentimes we get stuck in a pattern of sin. And it feels like there's no way out of this. It's dug its fingers into me so deep, its roots. A promise to, to me, to, to you as someone that knows Jesus, that has experienced uh, that relationship with him, the gospel transformation piece is that I can say no. I can walk away from this thing. I can say yes to God in this. Do not be deceived, he says. If you don't discipline your desires, they'll become your master. Are you looking for that way of escape? He says, take heed lest you fall. We're all, we're all vulnerable to that. Not a person in this room is, vul- is, is, is invulnerable to temptation. Faith, as we already defined, is a confident assurance and a credible authority that leads to action, that action is often in saying no to those desires. That is also growing my faith. Because every time I say no to my desires, I'm saying yes to his. And that's strengthening that bond between us. That's strengthening my confidence in him. But the fourth truth this morning, I think this is the one that is often the hardest one, is I can rest in the goodness of my Father instead of dwelling on my lack of control. I can rest in the goodness of my Father instead of dwelling on my lack of control. You know, as a kid, I was never worried in any situation when my dad was with me. Maybe you can relate to that, you know? Uh, I felt brave. I felt confident when my dad was there. I could get up and do things I would never have done by myself, say things I would have done by myself. His presence gave me that confidence. It gave me that assurance of his care for me. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation 
no shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You see, this is not a call to do more. This is a call to rest in my father, in my father's arms. He's a good father. Right? He gives good gifts and perfect gifts. And yes, that even includes those trials that we talked about at the beginning of the chapter. Though they're hard, those are good gifts. Why? Because they strengthen my faith. They focus my eyes straight ahead. Every victory that I see in Jesus in my life is a, is a good evidence of good gifts from my Father to me. He is always good. I love the language it says. It calls me the Father of lights. You know what that is? That's Genesis language. Father of lights. That's, that's the creator God who made the sun, the moon, the stars said, let there be light with his voice, and suddenly there was light, never existed before. That creator God is my father. He doesn't change. He doesn't have good days or bad days. And he's not finished with me either. I heard a phrase in a song a few weeks ago, and it's kind of stuck in my head. I love it. It says, if it's not good then he's not finished with it yet. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? If it's not good, I don't perceive that it's good. That didn't change. Everything from God is good, but even if I don't perceive that it's good yet, he's not finished. He's not finished with me. He's not finished with that guy in the mirror. Right? The truth of the gospel says that I know I'm not that credible authority but my father is. This morning, as you've looked into the full-length mirror of God's word here about your faith, what do you see? Which of those four truths is hardest for you to kind of wrap your mind around? Maybe they're all kind of difficult. Are you in the midst of trials this morning and you realize you've been trying to just bail yourself out instead of letting Jesus be the anchor? Are you in a situation looking for direction, for wisdom, and you've been looking for answers everywhere else, but you've never stopped to just ask your Father? You feel this morning that you're the mercy of your sin, feeling trapped by its lures. You can say no. There is a way of escape. Are you looking for it? The answer is the same in all these scenarios. Lean into the one who is, the, is that anchor for you. Remember your father. Remember, as, as Paul told Timothy, remember your creator in the days of your youth. It could also be your old age. He's a good father who gives good things even when I cannot see his goodness. Would you close your eyes, bow your heads for a second? Do you believe, do you believe these truths this morning? These are truths that are mine because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because I know him, because he's restored me to holy God. These are given to me. These are given to you if that's where your, it's where your faith is placed. What's the, a measure you could look to in your life of your faith right now? You going through trials this morning? Where are your eyes? 
Are they looking ahead at Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith? Are they looking everywhere else for help? Do you believe that God is the only credible authority this morning? How is that assurance, that confident assurance, what does that look like for you?